God's word in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the, after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, what do you do when you're part of one of the greatest victories? In 1987, after the New York Giants won the Super Bowl, a cameraman ran up to the winning quarterback, Phil Simms, and said, now that you've won the Super Bowl, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to Disney World. Now, it didn't hurt that they'd promise him $50,000 if he'd say that, but you get the point. Well, the Super Bowl was great, but we got to celebrate. And the best way to celebrate is Disney World. You do something great, you go celebrate. Other people take the other approach. In 2010, Auburn won the national championship in football, and Coach Gene Chizik was asked, what are you going to do tomorrow? And he said, I'm going recruiting. You win, what do you got to do? You got to keep fighting. You got to keep going. You got to get another one. No time to celebrate and rejoice. You get the next one. Well, in 1 Kings 18, 
we have one of the greatest victories in the Bible. Elijah created a contest between Baal and God on Mount Carmel. And there, each side was to make a sacrifice. The prophets of Baal, 450, and Elijah. But they had one thing missing, fire. So the prophets of Baal go first, and all morning they plead with Baal, and nothing happens. Elijah prays, and not only that, before he prayed, he created it, and then he poured water all over it. And when he prays, God sends down fire and consumes everything. Not just the sacrifice, not just the wood, but also the stones and the water. The people then respond with great joy and fear for the Lord and say, Yahweh is God. And then Elijah leads them to get rid of the prophets of Baal, to get rid of the idolatry in the land. And then because the idolatry is removed, he goes and he prays for rain to return and the three and a half year drought has ended. And then to top it all off, God leads him to run faster than Ahab's chariot can go and he beats Ahab to Jezreel. A day of great success and victory. So what will Elijah do now? Well, we just read, he's going to flee for his life. He's going to run. Now, 1 Kings, is, 1 Kings 19 is such an important chapter and topic that we're actually going to spend four weeks looking at it. Today, we're going to focus more on the story and Elijah and how God responds and helps him. But following that, we're going to take a week and see all of the ways the New Testament draws from this. And if you really want to understand your Bible, you really understand Jesus... You have to understand what came before him in the Old Testament. Why we're even going through kings in the first place. And after that, I want to consider the topic of depression. How should Christians think of this? Is it sinful for a Christian to be depressed? How do we fix it? What is the role of antidepressants, doctors, mental health? And if you have questions on those things, please ask. And hopefully we can address those in a few weeks. And then lastly, we see at the end of this chapter, the call of Elisha. So this chapter is really important. But this morning, we're going to focus on Elijah. And we see three things. In the first four verses, we see his fearful flight. Then in the next four verses, five through eight, we see God's providential provision. And then in verses nine through 18, we see God's revelation that both reassures Elijah and rebukes him. But it all began in verse one. And you can imagine Jezebel waiting at home with joy. I mean, what had happened? That day she would sent her husband and the prophets of Baal to go to the mountain. And what happened at the end of the day? There's rain. There's rain. In the, it worked. Her prophets have called down rain from the God of the storms, Baal. So she's waiting eagerly for Ahab to come home and tell her all of the prophets and what they did. And Baal must be pretty happy with her. I mean, she's subsidizing all of this. And yet, she doesn't have the victorious speech she expects. Rather, Ahab tells her everything that Elijah did. And I wonder if you caught Ahab's mistake. Ahab still doesn't get it. He doesn't say all that God did. He's still talking about Elijah. He is not focusing on the right thing. And notice, what do they do? Jezebel doesn't say, man, you know, I, I, really, I was raised to believe in Baal, and I've been giving my life and money to it, but it was pretty obvious today, that's wrong. Can we get Elijah in here? We need some instruction. We need to repent. We need to follow God. No. She says, oh, I'm going to kill him. 
You have to realize in life that people are not just led by facts. People believe what they want to believe. Now, facts are important, and we believe what we believe, hopefully because it is true. And it is true, but facts alone won't lead someone to repentance. They need a new heart. Now, if you've been reading the story through from chapter 17, you know what Elijah is going to do. He's going to say, well, who cares? I don't care what you say, Jezebel. God's provided for me for three and a half years. You can't touch me unless God wants me to wants you to touch me. You know, God brought me food in the wilderness. God brought me food in your own home country, Sidon. I just, through God's power, brought about a drought for three and a half years, and now it's gone. By God's power, we just had an altar consumed. I am safe. And yet that's not what Elijah does. Rather, Elijah responds with fear. You see, it's kind of easy to knock on Jezebel and Ahab. Well, they're not responding to the facts. They're only living on what they want to believe. And yet, Elijah is a lot like us. We don't always live off the facts. You know, we, or at least I, have had God so miraculously provide and care for me, but I still get far too discouraged when life doesn't go as I planned. I know His love, but yet I grumble and complain about such minimal things in life. I see and can say time and again, the only thing that matters in life is God, and yet I sure am pulled a lot by what other people think about me. I'm not always led by the facts, and I need to repent and ask God to give me a new and renewed heart. Yet for, as for Elijah, in his fear, he rose and he fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. And once there, what does he do? He leaves his servant, and then he goes even further, and he prays. And his prayer is definitely not what we would expect. He prays, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I mean, is this the same Elijah that was just praying on Mount Carmel? Is this the prophet? Well, yes. What is going on here? Well, Elijah's words and actions seem to be loudly saying, I'm done with serving you, God. I'm finished. I'm out of here. Please let me leave. And we see that in three ways. First, if you flip back to chapter 17, notice what happens. The beginning of all of this, Elijah goes and he tells them, by my prayer, there will be no rain in this land. And then it says, chapter 17, verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook. And Elijah heard God's word. And he obeyed. Then look at verse 8 of chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath. And what did Elijah do? He was told to go, so he goes. Chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, saying, Go, show yourself. And Elijah went. So each time, Elijah is given a clear order. Go, and Elijah went. Go, and Elijah went. Go, and Elijah went. Chapter 19, there's no word from the Lord, and yet Elijah went. Second, notice that Elijah went to Beersheba. Now, your geography of Israel is probably as good as mine, which is not that good. Beersheba is on the southern border of Judah. If you're reading through the Old Testament, sometimes you'll even read it, read it, and it'll say from Dan to 
Beersheba, like we might say from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., the far poles of the country. Well, Elijah didn't just run. He went to the farthest point of the country. And then what does he do when he gets there? He leaves his servant, which I think is the equivalent of a police officer going in and turning in his gun, his badge, and his cuffs and saying, See ya. I'm done. I've turned in all the stuff I use for my ministry because I don't want to do this anymore. And so he goes out in the wilderness and he asks God to take his life. Now this isn't the only prophet or man of God to reach this point. Israel, when they come out of Egypt, is often complaining. And in Numbers chapter 11, they're complaining that they don't have meat to eat. And Moses says this in Numbers 11. He says to God, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. Jeremiah declared in Jeremiah 20:14, Cursed be the day on which I was born. Jonah the prophet cried out in Jonah 4:3, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now this is not just in the Bible. Last year a friend emailed me a story in which the author tells of being on a Zoom call with other pastors, ten different pastors across various denominations, and during the midst of their sharing, one pastor said, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I've been imagining killing myself. The author then continued that by the end of the meeting, four other pastors also said they had been having suicidal thoughts as well. And I have to be honest, this is not beyond me. In 2018, I was so discouraged that I would say I was at that point. And you know, that's not limited to people in ministry. It's not limited to the rich or the poor male or female, any race or kind, we will sometimes reach the point in life where we don't want to take it anymore. And perhaps some of you are there today, or very close, and all you want to do is to get away from it all. Everything seems hopeless, and you've mentally, maybe relationally, maybe even physically checked out. You find yourself often wanting to be in bed, though you never seem to be refreshed, often struggling to find energy to do the smallest task. Your mind wanders aimlessly, except it seems to go back to the mental checklist of everything that's not going right. You're easily discouraged. You quickly swing from one emotion to the next, and you're so sick and tired of everything that nothing, not even things in the past that got you great joy, seem to do it anymore. Well, what we see from Scripture, what we see this morning, is that you're not alone. This is not just unbelievers who struggle with this, but God's prophets, his leaders struggle with this at times. In a fallen world, it's normal to have times of discouragement and perhaps even depression. Now the issue though is, I say that in a fallen world, there will be no depression in heaven, nor was there any before the fall. We should rightly remove the, the stigma of this for being discouraged, blue, sad, melancholy, however you want to word it, is not necessarily a sin. Yet, and this is what many people don't add, it can quickly lead you to sin. What are those sins? Well, keep coming. We're going to have a whole sermon on that. But for now, we can say for Elijah, it was to flee when he should have stayed. Thus, on the one hand, we can say depression is not normal. We were not created to ever be depressed. 
And yet, on the other hand, we need to say in a fallen world, this is a normal state of affairs. And yet we do live in that fallen world. And men like Elijah fleeing remind us that we desperately need God's help. A.W. Pink writes, The best of men are but men at best. No matter how richly gifted they may be, how eminent in God's service, how greatly honored and used of him, let his sustaining power be withdrawn from them for a moment, and it will quickly be seen that they are earthen vessels. No man stands any longer than he is supported by divine grace. The most experienced saint, if left to himself, is immediately seen to be as weak as water and as timid as a mouse. Perfection is found in heaven, but nowhere on earth except in the perfect man. So God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So how is he going to respond to Elijah fleeing? Well, we begin to see that in verses 5 through 8. There's a providential provision. After his prayer, Elijah lays down and he sleeps. But an angel awakes him and he says, Arise and eat. Notice that God did not begin with having an angel awake him and rebuking him. Or awaking him and calling him to repent. Or awaking him and saying, Fear not. Or awaking him and saying, You want to talk about it? He awoke him and said, I've cooked you some food. Would you like some stone cakes? Probably better than pancakes. And some water? And he eats, and then what does he do? He sleeps again. And then sometime later, how much later, we're not told, he wakes him again and says, This journey's too great for you. Eat. Now, this seems like some Tolkien elvish limbus bread or something. It has some sustaining power. He goes on this for 40 days and 40 nights. If you could make this, probably make a lot of money. But nonetheless, it didn't give us the recipe. And he goes. And where does he go? He goes to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is synonymous with, it's another name for Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is an important place. Many things happen there. That's why even here in these verses, it's called the Mount of God. Well, what happened there? Well, there God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. There is the place where God had Moses strike the rock so water would come out. It was there that God made the covenant with Israel through Moses and gave them the Ten Commandments. It was there where we read earlier that God came to Moses when Moses said, Show me your glory. And God's glory passed by. A revelation of God far greater than anyone else had experienced. And so Elijah returns to this exact same mountain. And like Moses, God will come and speak to him. In fact, there's so many things that parallel the life of Moses that there seems to be a clear connection between the two. So much so that when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Olives, it'll be these two great prophets, both Moses and Elijah, who will be there with Jesus. But we'll say more on that in a few weeks. In this section, though, God shows his care for our bodies as well as our souls. Tragically, sometimes Christians act as though the only thing that matters is someone's soul. Yet James 2, 15-17 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Yes, of course, our ultimate care never ends with just physical care, but it must often begin there. And often when it begins there, when we give them food, we give them rest, we will find someone who wants to hear of God's message to them. Yet we still haven't seen why is Elijah responding like this. And we'll see that now in this last section where we see rebuking and reassuring revelation. So Elijah makes it to Mount Horeb, and there he goes in a cave. Now, is this the cave where Moses was? Well, it doesn't clearly say that, though some think that, but we're not told explicitly that's true. And then a question comes, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you can ask that question in lots of ways, but it reminds me of God's gracious way that he often leads us to repentance. I don't know if you notice in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not immediately strike them with judgment. But he came to them and he first says, where are you? And then he asked them, who told you that you were naked? And then after they respond, he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knew the answer to every one of those questions. He could have just come and said, you sinned, death. And yet he was leading them with questions, drawing them out so they could confess their sins and repent. And what does Elijah say? He replies, verse 10, I've been exceedingly jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and your altar. They tore down and killed your prophets with the sword, and I am left, I alone, and they seek my life to take it. Well, Elijah's response shows the problem. He thinks too highly of himself and too lowly of others. The highs and lows of its thoughts revolve basically around two things, people and plans. In regards to people, he thinks he alone has been jealous for God's glory. Whenever you begin to think you alone are the one who suffers, or you alone are the saint who is doing good and right, spiritual sirens should be going off in your head. Elijah is not alone. For Obadiah has faithfully served God, though in a covert way. Along with Obadiah, there are a hundred prophets of God still alive. And Elijah just left what? His servant. He wasn't alone himself. He had a servant who was also serving Yahweh. Now, Elijah said the same thing on Mount Carmel. And there it made sense because you're not going to say to King Ahab, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but there's a hundred hidden prophets that uh, still serve God. And actually your main guy, Obadiah, he's secretly working to keep them alive. Of course he didn't say that then, but here he's talking to God. And he should know he's not alone. There are others still serving the Lord. And yet when we say that, when we act like Elijah, we are in danger. And if we know ourselves, if we know human nature, we know that Elijah probably has not said this for the first time, though this is probably the first time he said it audibly. More likely, this has been rehearsing in his mind over and over. It's as we do, as we tell ourselves, no one else in the family cares about this like I do. I'm the only person at this company who cares. No other Christian has to suffer like I do. All the other slackers in this church don't watch the children. They don't teach. They don't lead Sunday school. They don't clean the building. They don't care about right doctrine. They don't fill it out in whatever you think you're doing and other people aren't doing that they should. 
I, I alone am jealous for God. All prideful thoughts that if not confessed to God will eventually, like Elijah, come spilling out in our conversations. And this can happen corporately as well as individually. Well, we're the only church that's faithfully serving God. All the churches in the U.S. are going to hell in a handbasket. No one's being faithful. We're the only ones preaching the gospel. It's not true. There's lots of good churches in this town. There's lots of other good denominations, even though we're not part of a denomination. But nonetheless, Elijah's first problem is he views people incorrectly. He views himself too highly and everyone else too lowly. Second, in regards to the plan, it appears that Elijah has confused his plans with what should happen with whether God is acting. He expected that Mount Carmel was going to be the watershed moment, and from that the kingdom of God would be restored and Israel would return to glory. And yet, while Mount Carmel was part of God's plan, how it would unfold afterwards was not how Elijah envisioned it. And we too fall into danger when we confuse our plans for how God will work with how God does work. God does not have to work as we expect Him to. And sadly, many Christians have grown bitter when they have thought, if I do X, Y, and Z, then God will do this. Known Christian parents who said, well, I did this as a parent, and I did this type of schooling, and I didn't let my kids do this, and I had this, and you know what they're like now? And they're mad at God because they did everything right, and God owes them perfect children. And yet God does not have to do what he thinks we think he should do. Don't confuse your plans for what God should do with what God does. And Elijah made that mistake. We might think as a church, well, if we preach expositionally, if we have good theology, if we devote our resources to missions, if we sing great hymns, the church will grow. Maybe. God may not want that. Why? I don't know. Why didn't he want Mount Carmel to be the moment when Israel came back to him? We don't know. But when we confuse our plans with God's plans, then we will become like Elijah. Well, with Elijah having replied to God's question and the cause of Elijah's despondency being known, God now provides the cure. What does he do? He shows up, so to speak. He calls Elijah to go stand on the mountain. And then he passes by and has a great strong wind pass by, let me say, and it tore the mountain so strong that the rocks were torn apart. Now, if you live for any length of time in Wichita Falls, you'll soon hear of the tornado of 1979. Sections of neighborhoods leveled, schools destroyed, lives taken. Yet I've never known anyone to say the rocks were split apart. And yet that is what Elijah experienced. After the, and yet it says, the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake and yet the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after that, a fire. But it says in verse 12, the Lord was not in the fire. Yes, God caused all of them, but he was not in them. And then following these three natural events, there was the sound of a whisper. And then interestingly, when Elijah heard this, he went out and stood at the door of the cave and wrapped his face in a cloak. I say that's interesting because it was back in verse 11 when God told him to come out on the mountain, and yet it's not till verse 13 that we read of Elijah going to the entrance of the cave. It seems as though Elijah is still only partially obeying 
And at the cave's entrance, with his face wrapped, Elijah hears that light whisper. It's the type of situation where you're with a friend and they go, did you hear that? I, th- I think I heard something. You go, yeah, it was like really faint. I barely heard it. It's so, so quiet, you almost don't even hear it. And after the whisper, God again clearly asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah replies verbatim, same words, over, but I wonder if his tone and emphasis changed. Maybe he lacked the same strong, righteous, self-righteous tone, and maybe had more of a, I've been exceedingly zealous for what Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have been forsaken your covenant and your altar they tore down and killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm left, I'm alone, and they seek my life. So what's going on with all of these events? What's the small voice? Why the repeating of the question? Well, I think God does it because it gets to the heart of Elijah's issue, of expecting that through him, Elijah, and through his plans, God must work in a certain way. Yet God is not a genie who moves at our command. Well, why do I say that? Because God coming in big phenomenal events, like on Mount Carmel, is what Elijah expected. He is the God of the wind. He is the God of the earthquake. He is the God of the fire. That's all true. Even Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. God is those things. Yet, that's not how God was working now. You see, when Israel was at Hor before, when they were there on Mount Sinai, there was the smoke. There was the shaking. There was such fear because of all this that the people cried out and said, Moses, you speak to God for us. And yet, now God is not working that way. He's working through a whisper. Will Elijah be open to God working in a new and different way? Because this, this is not what Elijah expects. I have expectations, God, and you need to meet them. Now let's think about this. What do we say when someone whispers a response? Speak up! I can't hear you. You want people to respect you? You've got to speak up. You've got to be bold. You've got to have confidence. In other words, we think whispering, that's rather unimpressive. That's rather irrelevant. And yet God is letting Elijah know that he comes and it works through both. He might come through massive earth-shattering events, but he also might work through the whispers of life. Jesus said it this way in Luke 13, 19. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. You know, in Jewish culture, the mustard seed was the proverbial smallest seed. And it's like the whisper, so small that it seems insignificant. And yet, though very small, it will grow to be an enormous tree and be a blessing to others. And yet, while Scripture constantly teaches us that God works through large and small ways, we're often tempted to look for the big, the dramatic, the exciting events. Your one famous book even exhorts, watch to see where God is working and join Him there. Yet, I was just sharing the other day of someone I met years ago who wanted to be of an exciting, wanted to be part of an exhilarating ministry. And they're looking and looking and looking... And they never found it because they died. And we could so be so busy looking for the big and the grand that we miss that God's working 
right now. Wherever you are right now is where God wants you to work. Don't be looking for the dramatic. Realize he might be doing a whisper in your life, in this church. Thus, to bring it all together, Elijah's issue is he put all his hopes in his plan for how God would work. The large, the dramatic, the Mount Carmel event. And yet what happened? Jezebel still wants to kill God's prophets. Thus, when that event didn't lead to the change Elijah expected, he became discouraged, despondent, depressed. Now, we need to be clear, God is not rebuking Elijah for being discouraged over the spiritual state of the nation. We should grieve over the spiritual state of our nation. We should grieve when God is not glorified. We should grieve over the sin that still lasts in our life. And we see such examples of godly grief in the Psalms. Read the Psalms of lament and grief after grief as they cry out to God, how long will this continue? We read one earlier, Psalm 10. We see such sorrow over a nation in Luke in Luke 13, 34, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under wings, and you were not willing. And yet it was that concern that later caused Jesus to go back to the city, for we read in Luke 19, 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, Jesus draws near to the city in Luke 19 because he knows he goes to die for those in it. Thus, God rebukes Elijah not for sadness or grief or discouragement over the spiritual state of his people. He rebukes them for fleeing his post over that state. If we were to ask God's question again, I think the question would be saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here instead of in Israel? His grief, that was good. His desertion, that was the problem. And notice again God's gentle kindness. God's rebuke is not a red-faced spit spewing from the mouth. How can you be so stupid? Why did I ever trust you in the first place? You're so worthless. No, he asks him questions. He gives him rest. He gives him food. And he leads him back. He Leads him in a way, 40 days. I think that was to make Elijah go, God provided for Israel. God provided for Moses. He can provide for me. And then notice what God calls him to do. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Well, Beersheba is, and it is, the southern part of Judah. Damascus is above Dan in the north. So what is God calling him to do? I want you to go march right through Israel, right through Jezebel's territory. And you can trust me. You know, God is going to show Elijah, look, I do have a plan. I do have a people. It's just different than you thought. You're not alone. And so now he's going to call Elijah to anoint three people to office. First, he's supposed to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Now, I think this one probably really rattled Elijah God's going to use that pagan king, Haziel. He's going to use that pagan nation, Syria. Yes, God controls everyone, everywhere. And Elijah should not limit God 
to only working through those people that Elijah thinks God can use. Second, Elijah is to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. In other words, yes, Ahab and Jezebel, they're still reigning right now, but I reign over them and I could put someone else in charge of them whenever I want. God rules over Israel even when wicked leaders are in the positions of power. Yes, Jezebel has killed many prophets, but God rules over her. Thus, just because Elijah can't see how any good can come of this does not mean no good will come from it. And third, Elijah should anoint Elisha to be prophet in his place. You know, Elisha first will come as a servant and help Elijah, and then he will take the mantle, literally, of prophet. And God shows Elijah he has a plan. And while Elijah's part of it, he is not it, period. In other words, God does, and he will use others. And he's not dependent on us. He's not dependent on Elijah. 25 years ago, Keith Stone planted this church, but he's gone. Since then, several pastors, including Josh Longoria, who's here, have come and gone. I think someone during their time, we were talking about this last week, counted several hundred people who through the military and different things have been regular attenders at this church. They've come and gone. Last week we said goodbye to the Songers. And one day, every one of us will go. And the church will go on. Yes, some of us have a more visible impact on the church. But every part is essential. None of us is God's plan. We're all part of God's plan. And thus, no one can say, I'm really not that important to this church. And no one can say, I'm the most important part of this church. If I leave, this church is going to die. People come, people go. But the only part that needs to remain is the head, Jesus Christ. And he has promised that he'll never leave or forsake us. And one day, this church may go. But God's kingdom will be like that mustard tree that continues to grow, whether this church is here or not. So not only does God have other people besides Elijah... God's plan was not for a revival for Israel, but further evidence that punishment must happen. Thus, we read in verses 17 and 18 that Haziel will come in and punish them, then Jehu, and then even Elisha. And yet, Elijah needs to realize that there are still 7,000 people serving the Lord. In other words, Elijah, you're not alone. It may appear so because you only have one set of eyes. You don't know what's going on in every home. You don't know what's going on in every church. You don't know what's going on in every person's heart. But you can trust the one who sees it all, who sees the big picture. Thus God patiently and gently restored Elijah. You know, your current situation, your current emotional state is not the end. In 2018, when I was very discouraged and having suicidal thoughts, I would read Psalm 40 multiple times, sometimes two or three times a day. And it begins with this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You see, God is in the business of restoration and renewal. You know, God is not done with you yet, and he wants you to get out of your cave. You may want to be done. You may want to stay in the cave, 
but God is not done because you're still here. Now, it may be that you're at the initial part where you need the 40 days of rest, and you need some food and some water. God didn't say, Elijah, what are you doing here? I'm going to send you right back. He said, give him food, give him rest, give him water, and then let me give him my word of reassurance and rebuke. Let's have hope. God did not leave Elijah in his despair. God restored him, not only spiritually, not only emotionally, but he also restored him to service. Elijah is still serving the Lord. God can and will restore any and all who come to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that you are a restoring God. If it was only what our eyes could see, it would be such a small and dreary picture. And yet you are the God who restores, who renews, and we thank you for your work in us and through us. So would you give us eyes of faith for those who are discouraged? Would you bring hope for those who need rest? Would you give it for those who need food and drink? Would you provide it? Oh, Lord, may we be not like those in James who say be warm and be filled, but may we be those who help people be warmed and filled. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.